This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Principles of Decision-Making. In the first half, James B. Martino shares his address, Choose You This Day Whom You Will Serve. Then in the second half, Craig H. Hart speaks on Our Divine Nature and Life Decisions. Brothers and sisters, it is a privilege for Jenny and me to be here with you today. We owe much to this great university. We both attended BYU, and our experiences here had a significant influence on the happiness we now enjoy. Our lives could have taken a very different path if not for some key decisions we made along the way. One came during my senior year in high school when I chose to be baptized and confirmed a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Jenny and I had been dating for a few years, and she was, how should I say this, less than enthusiastic about my decision to join the church. Even so, she did not cast me off forever, and we kept dating through our senior year. After graduation, I went off to the University of Texas, and Jenny attended the University of North Texas in our hometown. We continued to communicate almost every day, and we saw each other as often as we could. That summer, I informed Jenny of another decision I had made. I was going to serve as a missionary in the Guatemala-El Salvador mission. Again, she was not thrilled with my decision and, in fact, was quick to say, Adios but we continued to write during my mission. To make a long story short, Jenny eventually gained her own testimony of the restored gospel, and I baptized her the week I came home. Then, about a week after that, we moved to Provo, where both of us had been accepted to attend Brigham Young University. Now we had another key decision to make. We had been dating for many years, and we desperately wanted to get married. We could be married civilly right away, or we could wait until Jenny had been a member for a year so we could be married in the temple. We decided to wait and be married in the temple. Of course, that choice implied the decision to live worthy of a temple marriage. May I just say how grateful we are for the spiritual environment at BYU, which made that decision much easier. I am sharing all of this with you to make a simple point. The happiness that has come into our lives is because of our choices to follow Jesus Christ. Perhaps Joshua had this principle in mind when he said to the children of Israel, Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua had courageously led the Israelites into a new land, the promised land. The trials and afflictions of their 40 years in the wilderness were behind them. New challenges now lay ahead, including the challenge of staying true to the Lord in a land where people worshipped other gods. So Joshua, who was nearing the end of his life, drew a line in the sand. I want you to make your choice, he essentially said. My family and I have made ours. We will serve the Lord. What about you? You're either all in or you're not. Joshua realized he needed to put the responsibility on the people, 
their choice must be based on their true beliefs, not on obligation. Their success and prosperity in the promised land depended upon the choice they made this day and in the days to come. We call this agency, our ability, in fact, our responsibility to choose for ourselves, and it is essential to our Heavenly Father's plan for His children. Why is agency so important? Because Heavenly Father's greatest desire is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. He wants to help us become joint heirs with Christ, to receive all that He has. These high aspirations require not only a change in our behavior, but more than that, a change in our natures. It requires that we do the right thing, but also that we do it for the right reasons. We choose the right because we love the right. God does not manipulate us with instant rewards and punishments. No, ultimately we must desire to choose what is right because it is right above all other reasons. Sometimes we confuse God with Santa Claus. We picture him dishing out coal or candy, depending upon whether we have been naughty or nice. We need to see God as he truly is, a loving father who is teaching us and as we turn to him, making all things work together for our good. When we make a choice, we are indicating what we value, what we desire, and ultimately what we are. And what we are, more than how we act, is what prepares us for eternal life. Consider the example of Lehi's sons, Laman, Lemuel, Sam, and Nephi. You remember that after the family fled into the wilderness, Lehi asked his sons to return to Jerusalem to obtain the brass plates from a man named Laban. Not all of them were thrilled with this assignment, but they all went. As they approached Jerusalem, the brothers cast lots, and the lot fell upon Laman to request the plates. Laban not only denied the request, but he also accused Laman of being a robber and threatened to slay him. The four brothers decided upon a second way to accomplish what their father had asked. They returned to their home, and they gathered all of their gold and silver and precious things to buy the plates from Laban. Now think about it. This choice involved a serious commitment. It meant that they were never going to return to Jerusalem and have any of their wealth. Yes, there was some murmuring, but they did it. And yet again, Laban would not give them the records. In fact, he sent his servants to slay the brothers, forcing them to leave their precious possessions behind. Now put yourself in the place of these brothers for a minute. Wouldn't now seem like a good time to go home? Hadn't they given a valiant effort? They had sacrificed all their wealth and even risked their lives. No, they had not obtained the plates, but that outcome seemed beyond their control. Had they not done everything they could? When we read the Book of Mormon, we like to think we are more like Nephi and Sam than Laman and Lemuel. But are we? 
This difficult task presented the brothers with choices, with opportunities to show the depth of their commitment. Life is full of such opportunities for all of us. Sometimes choosing to serve the Lord requires patience, persistence, and other godly attributes. Sometimes the outcomes are not at all what we anticipated or even wanted. But we choose how we will react. We choose whether to give up or to continue faithful. I know that you want to be more like Nephi and Sam than Laman and Lemuel. I know that you want your choices to reflect your love for what is right. But I also know that it is not easy. Today, I would like to share three suggestions that can help you make choices that align with your desires for righteousness. One, keep an eternal perspective. Two, do not underestimate the enemy. Three, repent when you make mistakes. First, let's talk about eternal perspective. You remember Albus Dumbledore the wise wizard from J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter books. He understood agency. Harry Potter asked Dumbledore why the sorting hat put him in the house of Gryffindor, the house he preferred, even though he showed some signs of fitting in the loathsome house of Slytherin. Dumbledore explained, It is our choices, Harry, that show what we truly are, far more than our abilities. Harry Potter was a Gryffindor because he chose it. And that choice shaped his experiences and ultimately who he became. His desires were actually a deeper and more accurate reflection of his true identity than anything else about him. Sometimes we wish we had a sorting hat to make choices for us, to decide what our destiny will be. But this would eliminate agency the single strongest factor in determining our destiny. It is our choices that make us who we are, not our birth, not our nationality, not even our parental upbringing. We can and must decide for ourselves. Keeping an eternal perspective means not allowing a sorting hat or chance or luck or circumstances to set our destiny. The restored gospel of Jesus Christ gives us a high and holy aspiration planted in us long before we were born and revealed in our desires for righteousness and godliness. That goal ought to determine who we want to become. It is easier to make good choices when we think about them in light of our eternal destiny. Of course, some choices are not eternally important. Do I buy a red shirt or a blue shirt? It really does not matter. Though you might go with the blue shirt on this campus. But other choices have significant consequences. Will I stay on the covenant path? Will I let something that I do not understand cast doubt on my testimony? Will trials cause me to become hardened? Or they help me to become softened? in the depth of humility. And then there are those difficult decisions between two things that both seem good. Often, Heavenly Father does not give specific direction, but leaves the decision to us. 
In all such decisions, you can keep an eternal perspective by asking yourself, will this decision help me and others draw closer to God? Will it help me and others find greater happiness? Will it help me and others become a better son or daughter of God? I have spoken to several individuals who have left the church. I always like to ask them this question. Are you closer to Christ now than you were before you left the church? Almost without exception, they say no. Oh, they might say that they are happier, but that happiness is often based on worldly pleasures like boating or sports on Sunday or finding some temporary pleasure in breaking the word of wisdom or the law of chastity. But almost never has anyone told me that they feel closer to the Savior. President Russell M. Nelson has said, We choose every day where we want to live eternally by how we think, feel, speak, and act. Remember, please remember, the promised blessings that are yours. You are a child of a loving Heavenly Father, and He wants you to become like He is. Years ago, Sister Wendy Watson, now the wife of President Russell M. Nelson, spoke at a BYU devotional. She told a story about a caterpillar named Yellow, who was trying to figure out what to do with her life. One day, Yellow discovered another caterpillar, who seemed to be caught in a mess of thin, hairy fibers. When Yellow asked if she could help, the caterpillar explained that he was making a cocoon so he could become a butterfly. Yellow had never heard the word butterfly before, but it made something inside her leap. But what is a butterfly, she asked. The other caterpillar described the beauty and majesty of a butterfly and explained, it is what you are meant to become. Yellow was skeptical. How can I believe there's a butterfly inside you or me when all I see is a fuzzy worm? But she could not leave the thought alone. How does one become a butterfly, she finally asked. The other caterpillar answered, You must want to fly so much that you're willing to give up being a caterpillar. With that kind of eternal perspective, you will make choices that help you become who you are meant to become. My second suggestion to help us to make the right choices is to understand that the enemy is real and should not be underestimated. This is almost as important as knowing that God is real. The difference is that while God wants us to know him, Satan would rather stay unknown. He disguises himself in so many ways. He is sly and cunning, and he will do all he can to blind us to our eternal goals. One of the most important battles in World War II is known as the Battle of the Bulge. It came about six months after the famous Normandy invasion, and it was the last major offensive campaign by the Nazis on the Western Front. Hitler pulled in his best officers and soldiers from the Eastern Front with the hope of reversing the advancement of the Allied forces. The German attack caught the Allies unaware, and casualties, particularly among American troops, were high. But Hitler underestimated the Allied forces, and after about six weeks, the Nazis were defeated 
and never gained the upper hand again. As a result, the Allies were able to begin a constant drive to Berlin. And because German troops had been diverted from the Eastern Front, Russia was able to quickly move toward Berlin also. Experts of history say that many of Hitler's advisors cautioned him to not put everything in this one battle, but he would not listen. He underestimated his enemy, and he paid the price. We are all susceptible to the same mistake. That is why the Book of Mormon, which was written for our day, includes helpful warnings about the strategies and tactics of the adversary. Let us review what Nephi taught about how Satan will deceive us in these latter days. At that day shall he rage in the hearts of the children of men and stir them up to anger against that which is good. Do we see this today? So much public and private conversation seems to be filled with rage. Even that which ought to be widely acknowledged as good is angrily attacked as evil while other things that God has clearly identified as evil are often called good. Do not be deceived by the sophistry of the devil. When we attempt to correct a wrong, we should not use other wrongs to make that correction. Inappropriate actions by some should not be answered with violence. We must stand for peace and love as taught by the Savior. We must bring people to Christ, the only true way to change hearts. Nephi goes on to say, And others will he pacify and lull them away into carnal security, that they will say, All is well in Zion, yea, Zion prospereth, all is well, and thus the devil cheateth their souls and leadeth them away carefully down to hell. Do not let Satan lull you to sleep. This world needs you. We need your example of goodness. We need your active participation to bring souls to Christ. Many of you have served missions, but there is so much more to do. We need you to continue to arise and be counted. You need to be a voice on the Lord's side for righteousness and goodness. Nephi described another tactic of Satan. Others others he flattereth away, and telleth them, There is no hell. And he saith unto them, I am no devil, for there is none. And thus he whispereth in their ears until he grasp them with his awful chains, from whence there is no deliverance. Often Satan's whisperings are an attempt to minimize the consequences of sin. He might persuade some to say, It's okay to look at this pornography. It's not hurting anyone else. Or he may justify the taking of illegal drugs as if no one else is affected by such actions. I have lived many years in Latin America and seen the awful consequences of Americans' appetites for illegal drugs. Oh, the violence, poverty, and corruption that this has caused. Do not be deceived. Wickedness never was happiness. And the wickedness of one far too often can bring unhappiness even to the innocent. In other cases, the adversary's whispers suggest justifications for our sins. He might say, I can't help myself. 
or I was just born this way, or he made me do it. In each case, Satan is attempting to deny our agency, which has been his strategy since the beginning. Even the exclamation, that makes me so mad, is in a sense a capitulation of agency. We choose to be mad. Yes, things happen that can influence on us, but we can overcome all of that. We are agents created to act and not to be acted upon. You, each one of you, is a child of our Heavenly Father. If you have habits or traditions that must be changed, you can do that. If there is something in your life that offends the Spirit of God, then change it. You can do that. The Savior Jesus Christ gave His life to provide the power to help you change. Remember, that there is one thing Christ and Satan have in common. They both want us to become like them. However, Satan wants to trick us into it. Christ wants it to be our choice. This leads me to my last point. Repent when you make mistakes. I am sure you are aware that mistakes are part of mortal life. Some of us are more painfully aware of this than others. But I hope you also know that repentance, too, is a part of God's plan for our mortal experience. Repentance is not shameful or tragic. Sin is tragic. Repentance is the way we overcome the tragedy. It is the way we show that we want to return to God and is the way that we get there. The decision to repent is a commitment to access the Savior's power to change. One of the great tragedies in our modern era was the Holocaust of the Jews during World War II. Millions of innocent Jews were tortured, abused, and murdered. Few survived the concentration camps. But one man who did, Viktor Frankl, came away with a valuable perspective on life and suffering. In a book describing his experiences, Frankel concludes that regardless of our situation, even when so much of our freedom seems to be taken away, we can preserve what he calls the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Frankel writes, even though conditions such as lack of sleep Insufficient food and various mental stresses may suggest that the inmates were bound to react in certain ways. In the final analysis, it becomes clear that the sort of person the prisoner became was the result of an inner decision and not the result of camp influences alone. Fundamentally, therefore, any man can, even under such circumstances, Decide what shall become of him, mentally and spiritually. It is this spiritual freedom, which cannot be taken away, that makes life meaningful and powerful. Is this how we see ourselves? Do we consider ourselves bound to act in certain ways, or are we free to decide what we will become? When we sin, the Holy Ghost will help us to recognize it as long as we are still open to his promptings. When that happens, we basically have two choices. We can repent 
or we can rationalize our actions in an attempt to feel better about our behavior. One such rationalization is the old adage, the devil made me do it. Even Satan, however, cannot make us do anything without our permission. Another rationalization is that our choices are limited by circumstances beyond our control. It is true that we all face physical or mental challenges, some more severe than others. But we cannot let those difficulties define us or determine our choices, especially when it comes to our spirituality. We must see things as they really are, but we must also see ourselves as we really are. We are so much more than our mortal experiences and limitations. We are children of Heavenly Father, and because of that, we have a divine nature. With His help, we can overcome the natural man and yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit so that we become what God has created us to become. We are in control of our spiritual and inner destiny, and we can fulfill the purpose of our creation. Satan does not want us to believe we can change. He wants us to think we are victims, but we can change. Do not give up the fight and allow carnal desires to shape our decisions. The mission of Jesus Christ was to make it possible for us to change. He accomplished his mission. Repentance is an act of faith in him, faith in his power. President Russell M. Nelson made this statement. We can change our behavior. Our very desires can change. How? There is only one way. True change, permanent change, can only come through the healing, cleansing, and enabling power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. He loves you, each of you. He allows you to access his power as you keep his commandments eagerly, earnestly, and exactly. It is that simple and certain. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of change. Elder David A. Bednar in the most recent Mission Leadership Seminar said this, True faith is focused in and on the Lord Jesus Christ, in Him as the divine and only begotten Son of the Father, and on Him and His redemptive mission. Exercising faith in Christ is trusting and placing our confidence in Him as our Savior, on His name, and in His promises. Repenting is the first and natural consequence of placing our trust and confidence in the Savior. Described most simply, repentance is turning away from evil and turning to God. As we exercise faith in and on the Lord, we turn toward, we come unto, and we depend upon Him. Thus, repentance is trusting in and relying upon the Redeemer to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Recognizing and forsaking sin, feeling remorse and making restitution for sin, and confessing sins to God and when needed to our priesthood leaders are all necessary and important elements in the repentance process. However, these essential steps do not constitute a mere behavioral checklist we can mechanically, quickly, and casually complete. If we do these things, 
and failed to recognize and depend upon the Redeemer and His atoning sacrifice, then even our best efforts are in vain. When we turn to Christ, He can help us to change our hearts. We can begin to feel what King Benjamin's people felt when they said, We have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. This is one way we can know that our decisions are drawing us closer to the Savior. When you make mistakes, be mature enough to admit them, smart enough to learn from them, strong enough to correct them, and faithful enough to trust in the Savior's atoning power to overcome them. Jenny and I loved our experience here at BYU. We were surrounded by examples of wonderful people. We had professors and religious leaders who encouraged us. But we had to make the choices that led us to feel the happiness we feel. We have not been perfect by any means, but I do not know two people any happier than we are. And that began with choices we made here at Brigham Young University. Brothers and sisters, make choices that will bring you eternal happiness. To do this, please remember, keep an eternal perspective. Do not underestimate the enemy. Repent when you make mistakes. I bear witness that you are special sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. I know that Jesus is the Christ and has provided the means for you to return to the presence of God if you will choose this day whom you will serve. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Principles of Decision-Making. We've just heard from James B. Martino. After the break, we'll return with Craig H. Hart for our Divine Nature and Life Decisions. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Principles of Decision-Making. Next is Craig H. Hart, BYU Professor of Human Development in the School of Family Life and an Associate Dean in the College of Family, Home, and Social Sciences at the time of this address, titled Our Divine Nature and Life Decisions. I appreciate the opportunity to share this devotional hour with you and pray that what I have to say might be uplifting and meaningful in your lives. Leading into my topic on our divine nature and life decisions, I would like to briefly reminisce about a couple of my BYU experiences as a student. These might be applicable to some of you in the decisions that you are currently making. It was 30 years ago this summer that my wife, Kirstine, and I first met in a family home evening group activity at the Smithfield House. As the weeks passed, Kirstine would mysteriously show up at my table at the Deseret Towers cafeteria whenever I was eating lunch, which was often at a different time each day. I quite liked that, but really wasn't interested in pursuing anything serious until my elders quorum president pulled me aside one day. After listing off some of Kirstine's great qualities, he asked me to help him find a way to enjoy having lunch with her on a regular basis like I was. Suddenly, I got very interested, and the rest is history. 
I've always wondered if she set him up to do that. <laughs> Both of us well remember our first few months of marriage, living in a studio apartment south of campus, tucked under Mexican and Italian restaurants and a bakery. We have many interesting memories of the place, including the black oozy slime that crept out of the shower drain each morning. Our oldest son, David, was conceived shortly after we were married. Morning sickness mixed with the smells wafting down from the eateries above made for particularly poignant memories. Much like now, it was a time of economic uncertainty. We started our lives together in the midst of long gas lines due to oil shortages, two back-to-back recessions, double-digit inflation, and double-digit interest rates. But we moved forward with our family in faith that all would work out. At the time, I was teaching Japanese to missionaries at the MTC. Our rent was $110 a month, including utilities, a real bargain. I was making about $250 per month, so we were set, both of us attending BYU until complications with pregnancy and a premature baby postponed Kirstein's schooling until many years later. Like many of you now, I was seeking inspiration and struggling to decide what to major in and what career path I should pursue. It wasn't until I started taking child development and psychology classes from wonderful BYU faculty mentors that I discovered my academic passion that led me to a research and university teaching career. After nine years of post-marriage camping out, as some relatives used to call it, we left graduate school behind. It has been a fascinating journey over the past couple of decades, witnessing and being part of the scientific enterprise in my discipline new discoveries that have helped explain how the complex interplay between nature and nurture works to facilitate child and adolescent development for good and for ill have captivated my attention. Yet it is humbling to realize that studies in my discipline only capture a mortal millisecond of eternity in the lives of our Heavenly Father's children. Without an understanding of our spiritual personalities that existed prior to mortal birth and eternal progression, that continues beyond mortality, secular knowledge about human development will always be limited. Today I would like to focus on our spiritual personalities as an essential part of our eternal identity. Our divine nature stems from our premortal existence. Understanding who we are from an eternal perspective can help guide decisions that we make every day. Let us first consider what has been revealed about our pre-earth life and our spiritual personalities. Every prophet since Joseph Smith has reiterated the reality of our premortal existence and the eternal identity of our spirits. This is illustrated in an earlier statement by the First Presidency in 1912. Before our mortal birth, we had a pre-existent spiritual personality as the sons and daughters of the Eternal Father. This doctrine was highlighted more recently in the family, A Proclamation to the World. All human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. Each is a beloved spirit, son, or daughter of heavenly parents, and as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. Gender is an essential characteristic of individual premortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. Numerous biblical passages afford glimpses of our spiritual origins and eternal potential. For example, the Apostle Paul reminded us that we are the offspring of God and that God is the Father of spirits. Some years ago, a colleague of mine who was a devout member of another Christian denomination was curious about our beliefs. As I answered questions that touched on this plan of salvation, 
we read together about the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill in Athens, stating that we are the offspring of God. After a moment of reflection, he asked, Do you realize the implications of these passages? I thought I did, but soon realized he had picked up on something quite profound. He said, It looks like the Apostle Paul is addressing non-members of the church here and referring to them as the literal offspring of God. I have always thought of children of God as only referring to those who accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. But this makes me wonder if there isn't more to this. Although he declined my invitation to meet with the full-time missionaries, he did do considerable research on his own and concluded that the doctrine of the premortal existence had once been a part of his religious tradition and that of many others. This actually made him more committed to his own faith. I learned from him, and later confirmed on my own, that the doctrine of a premortal existence was a common theme that was widely taught and written about by early Christian theologians and scholars until a council in A.D. 543 when it was branded as heresy. How blessed we are to have this plain and precious truth not only restored in our day, but elaborated by modern revelation in ways that provide direction and meaning in our lives as we consider our divine nature and destiny. Gender is also an essential characteristic that originated in the premortal realm. President Boyd K. Packer reminded us that the scriptures and teachings of the apostles and prophets speak of us in premortal life as sons and daughters of God, spirit children of God, Gender existed before and not and did not begin at mortal birth. He also encouraged us to be careful lest you unknowingly foster influences and activities which tend to erase the masculine and feminine differences that nature has established. The origin of gender is a heatedly debated topic in my discipline. Competing theories and research abound that attempt to explain gender origins that focus on the extent to which it is modifiable, socially constructed, biologically driven, or all of the above. We are blessed with a secure knowledge that gender is a vital part of our eternal identity and purpose. As I contrast this with the confusion and inconclusiveness of the secular data at hand, I am grateful for our understanding of the divine role that gender plays in our eternal progression. As in our mortal existence, we had opportunities to obtain knowledge, progress, and make eternally defining decisions in premortality. We participated in the council in heaven, learned of our Heavenly Father's eternal plan for our destiny, progressed as far as we could without a physical body and mortal experiences, and chose to prove our willingness to keep God's commandments while in a mortal state where there would be no recollection of our premortal experiences. We also learned that our Heavenly Father would provide a Savior so that we could overcome sin and death. Because we are here upon this earth, we kept our first estate. You and I made the decision to follow our Heavenly Father's plan rather than give heed to Satan's plan, which would have resulted in an inability to make choices for ourselves and to learn from our own experiences. As we will contemplate shortly, knowledge of our eternal identity and the decisions we made in premortality can help us make wise choices in our mortal existence. We also had the opportunity in premortality to develop many talents and abilities that can play an important role in our mortal existence. Consider the following statements. Elder Bruce R. McConkie said, Being subject to law and having their agency, 
all the spirits of men while yet in the eternal presence developed aptitudes, talents, capacities, and abilities of every sort, kind, and degree. During the long expanse of life, which then was, an infinite variety of talents and abilities came into being. Earlier, President Joseph F. Smith taught, notwithstanding this fact that our recollection of former things was taking away, the character of our lives in the spirit world has much to do with our dispositions, desires, and mentality here in mortal life. This spirit influences the body to a great extent, just as the body in its desires and cravings has an influence on the spirit. Environment and many other causes, however, have great influence on the progress and destiny of man. But we must not lose sight of the fact that the characteristics of the spirit, which were developed through the many ages of a former existence, play a very important part in our progression through mortal life. In this regard, I often think of Cain, who the scriptures refer to in Moses as one who is a rebel, a liar, and an associate of Lucifer in the pre-existence. He was even called perdition from before the world. Yet somehow he managed to make good choices that helped him attain mortal birth, and even began his time in mortality being obedient to the laws of God. Unfortunately, he later rebelled and slew Abel. Despite the righteous teachings of Adam, we can only speculate as to what might have happened to entice him back to his former proclivities. Alternatively, the teachers teach that there were many noble and great ones who were good from before the world. Nephi was likely one of those valiant ones who exercised his agency in responsible ways. He had great desires to know the mysteries of God and did not rebel against his father as his brethren Laman and Lemuel did. Yet all three brothers were born of goodly parents. Although we cannot speculate as to the reasons for why things played out the way that they did for these more and less valiant spirits in mortality, we have a unique opportunity to learn things about ourselves that stem from our premortal decisions and predispositions. Patriarchal blessings can guide our life decisions and often provide glimpses into premortal aspects of our existence in ways that can provide warnings, admonitions, and guidance about our gifts and talents that can bless our lives and those around us. In mortality, every person is endowed with spiritual gifts and talents that are part of their divine nature that can be refined, developed, and enlarged as a result of earthly experiences. Everyone also has characteristics that are less than complete, as reflected in the lack of aptitude and talent in some areas. We learn in ether that weaknesses can foster humility and that weak things can become strong if individuals humble themselves and have faith in God. Strengths and weaknesses can provide opportunities and learning experiences depending on the circumstances individuals find themselves in and the extent to which opportunities are availed. I received my mission call during a time when we had to take a language aptitude test. When my state president saw my score, he laughed and said, Well, you won't have to worry about going foreign. I've never seen such a low score. Imagine my surprise when the call to Japan came. I didn't even know where it was on the map. Learning Japanese was the hardest thing I've ever done at that time, up to that time. Yet, as many of you have experienced, the Lord miraculously prepared a way, and it wasn't long before I knew exactly why I had been sent there. Those language skills, the cultural experience, and the converts I worked with have been a blessing in my life to this day. 
Regardless of our talents and abilities, or the lack thereof in some areas, all individuals also have both goodness and fleshly susceptibilities within them. President David O. McKay summarized the nature of humankind. He said, Man has a dual nature, one related to the earth or animal life, the other akin to the divine. Unquote. Before baptism and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, all received the light of Christ to discern good from evil. We came from the heavenly realm and are born into a world of sin beset with temptations for the natural man, but also full of spiritual opportunities for growth for the divine. Being born innocent is being born neither good nor evil, but having the potential for both. The natural man in us grows as a result of sin and our rejection of the promptings of the Spirit, whereas our divine nature is manifest when we give heed to those spiritual promptings and reject sin. There has been much to contemplate so far today. To review briefly, we lived in a pre-mortal existence as spirit sons and daughters of heavenly parents. While there, we had opportunities to develop talents, obtain knowledge, and make decisions that play important roles in our mortal existence. In mortality, everyone is endowed with spiritual gifts and talents that are part of our divine natures, as well as with opportunities to develop characteristics that are less than complete. We are also born innocent, with the potential to engage in both good and evil, depending on our choices in mortality. Let's now further consider mortal decision-making opportunities that are part of this mortal experience. As with our pre-mortal existence, our mortal schooling is replete with opportunities to make choices that will either turn us toward or take us away from our divine destiny in our heavenly home. King Benjamin in the Book of Mormon reminds us to watch ourselves and your thoughts and your words and your deeds and to observe the commandments of God and continue in the faith so that we perish not. We need to be vigilant and avoid making poor choices that can take us down forbidden paths. Remembering who we are as spirit children of God and all that means can be very helpful. Some good choices are easy to make if we have made firm decisions in accordance with our eternal values in advance. Several years ago, after attending professional meetings in Europe, I had the pleasure of being bumped to first class on a flight from Paris to the United States. It was an entirely different world than what I normally experience. As I was enjoying the leg room and reclining in luxury, the flight attendants kept bringing wonderful dishes and offering wine to go along. After I had declined the wine for about a third time, a flight attendant came up behind me, leaned down close to my ear, and teasingly said, Mr. Hart, no one will ever know. Well, <laughs> shocked out of my blissful state and wondering what all she knew about me and how, I simply said, well, I would know, you would know, and then pointing overhead, I said, and most importantly, he would know. She said, got it, and brought more fruit juice instead. <laughs> that was an easy choice to make. The right choices in other areas are often more difficult to discern, particularly when choices are between several good options, like what academic major to pursue. And some choices are more pertinent to our salvation than others. For example, who we choose to marry is far more critical than what type of car we decide to buy. We need not be left alone in the decisions that we make, big or small, in our mortal schooling experience. President Ezra Taft Benson explained, Usually the Lord gives us the overall objectives to be accomplished and some guidelines to follow. 
but he expects us to work out most of the details and methods. The methods and procedures are usually developed through study and prayer and by living so that we can obtain and follow the promptings of the Spirit. As illustrated by many scriptural examples, including Lehi's family, it is interesting in mortality to observe that not all children respond similarly to parental or other environmental influences. Part of this may be due to spiritual predispositions, as noted earlier. In terms of adhering to gospel teachings, we see considerable variation in how individuals respond to spiritual influences in this mortal existence. President Brigham Young noted this when he said, Some spirits are more noble than others. Some are more capable of receiving more than others. There is the same variety in the spirit world that you behold here, yet they are the same parentage of one Father, one God. There are also genetic and environmental factors involved. Elder Neil A. Maxwell said, Of course our genes, circumstances, and environment matter very much, and they shape us significantly. Yet there remains an inner zone in which we are stubborn unless we abdicate. In this zone lies the essence of our individuality and our personal accountability. We will likely need to wait until the eternities to understand how our spiritual personalities specifically interact with genetic and environmental influences in mortality. From an academic perspective, we can only systematically study a small portion of the full equation that involves only the interaction of biological and environmental factors in a millisecond of eternity. Our understanding of this small portion is slowly increasing. As an example, it was once simplistically thought that certain parenting practices typically lead to desired child and adolescent conformance and behavior. It is true that following certain parenting principles will increase the probability of obtaining desired outcomes for the majority of children and youth. Research shows that parents can make the most difference in teaching moral and religious values that can help their children make wise choices, even in the face of biological urges or peer influences that would have them do otherwise. This is why parents who actively teach righteous living by precept and example, who strive to be connected with their children, who impose appropriate limits on behavior, and who allow appropriate latitude for child decision-making, are more likely to have well-adjusted children and teens. But there are many exceptions to these statistical trends, often in same families. More recent multivariate studies have also documented how susceptible children are to certain child-rearing influences and parental values depends in large part on their personalities, temperamental dispositions, and other biologically-based characteristics. Individual characteristics contribute to dynamic parent-child interactions that are influenced by a host of other factors across development, including cultural norms, educational practices, media, and peers, to name a few. Taking all these factors into account does not easily lead to predictable outcomes for all children and youth. In his encouragement of parents dealing with the many complexities associated with child-rearing, President Brigham Young was well ahead of his time when he suggested that parents study children's dispositions and their temperaments and deal with them accordingly. President James E. Faust more recently reminded us that child-rearing is so individualistic. What works with one child may not work with another. Most parents learn this pretty quickly. I once thought I had it figured out how to get one of my daughters to bed when she was young. After experimenting with a number of strategies beyond the bedtime story and prayer routine, I finally discovered that she went happily to bed if I gave her the option of me turning the light off or letting her do it. Well, that worked for about two weeks, but it was bliss. 
When I later tried that strategy with my other daughter at about the same age, she simply responded to my choices of who would turn the light off by definitively stating that she wasn't going to bed. But I did discover that swimming together into her bedroom on the floor like fish or jumping into the bedroom together like kangaroos did the trick for her. But only for about two weeks. Then it was on to more experiments to figure out what worked next. In conclusion, despite all that we have considered today, there is much about our pre-mortal development and how our specific actions in the spirit world influence us in mortality that has not been revealed. Although secular knowledge somewhat explains how genetic-based characteristics and environmental influences interact to influence human development, there is an important spiritual dimension of our beings that cannot be readily probed by scientific means. What a wonderful blessing it will be if we are found worthy to learn from our Heavenly Father about how our spiritual personalities and biology are intertwined according to His foreknowledge in preparation for individualized schooling experiences in mortality. We have much to look forward to learning in that celestial university on high. Elder Merrill J. Bateman, in an earlier devotional talk, put much of what we have contemplated today into perspective when he reminded us that the knowledge of the premortal world provides a context of mortality. This life is the second part of a three-act play. What a marvelous blessing it is to live in a day when this treasured knowledge has been restored by a prophet of God. I testify that we live in a time of continuing revelation from a loving Heavenly Father who is very interested in facilitating our eternal progression back into His presence. It is my hope and prayer that we will be more cognizant of our divine natures that are rooted in an existence that long preceded our birth into mortality. May we utilize the talents that we have been blessed with to further our Heavenly Father's plan of happiness for our brothers and sisters. And may we make good choices in life that are commensurate with our eternal identity and the decisions that we made in the pre-mortal realm. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Principles of Decision-Making, with thoughts from James B. Martino and Craig H. Hart. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.